Hi, and welcome to our third and final episode in our stem cell series. Join us as we discover how we might cure blindness, what it's like being a researcher, and where we might one day grow our organs. I'll give you a hint, it's not where you think. Welcome to Let's Talk Science Out Loud, where we bring science to you and you to science. Well, I'm just coming here to come down. I could be here, and I could move I'm Ilya Arbach-Sjogis, and thanks for joining us as we reconvene Claire with Professor Derek Vanderkoy. After the final installment of their conversation, we'll be joined again by Professor Ian Rogers as he returns to answer even more of your questions from Stem Cell Talks. Remember that this interview was performed and these questions were asked by people just like you. If you have science questions that you're burning to have answered, go online and let us know. Find the podcast page at explorecuriosity.org on Facebook, or tweet us at LTS Out Loud and let us know what questions you'd like to have answered. Let's rejoin Claire now in the final installment of her interview with Professor Derek Vanderkoy. What do you think is the most exciting research you've ever done? Um, I don't know, maybe the, two things maybe. The, the, the stuff on the addiction switch, what changes uh, a drug reward from just pl- just a simple pleasure to an addiction? Mm-hmm. Uh, we published a paper in Science, a journal called Science, a couple of years ago where we described what we thought that switch was. And I think that's really a neat, uh, a neat finding. Uh, the other thing I, I really like is, is, is the work on retinal stem cells. So these are the stem cells in the eye right. that we work on. And uh, I like them because you can actually see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know where they are. We can, you can point them out to people. And uh, they're really, I think, clinically uh, uh, important because mm-hmm. we can, uh, right now there's no treatments for blindness. Right. And we can take retinal stem cells from human eye, from people who die or surgically, and uh, grow huge numbers of, uh, of retinal neurons uh, in a dish. And right now, uh, two of the students uh, in the lab are trying to grow photoreceptors, which are the cells that first sense light in the eye. Right. And they're the cell that's missing in a lot of people who are blind. And so we can now grow from, a, from an adult human retinal stem cell, we can grow uh, uh, gazillions of, uh, gazillions is a technical term, mm-hmm. of uh, photoreceptors, uh, mo- of human photoreceptors. And what we're doing is putting those human photoreceptors back into mice who are blind because their own photoreceptors don't work. Yeah. And the neat thing we can do is we can, a few, a very small number of those human photoreceptors will integrate into the mouse retina, the host mouse retina, yeah. and connect up correctly and actually give a small amount of vision back to a mouse that's blind because you've replaced the photoreceptors that are missing. So uh, one of the things we're most interested in now is, is why is it such a little improvement in vision? And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, interesting questions about can we fully recover vision in a blind animal by giving right. lots of photoreceptors. But the initial discovery of, uh, of retinal stem cells that have such unique properties, and they're the easiest human cell we've ever grown in the lab. They're incredibly easy to grow, which is wonderful because we can produce all kinds of cells. Yeah. Uh, but they're also clinically, I think eventually will be clinically useful. So that, yeah. that's one of the other things I really like. So what makes them especially easy to grow compared yeah. to other cells? So, so the neat thing is that, that, that um, we think that the retinal stem cells make the eye and the embryo, but then shortly after birth, they go quiescent and they never divide again. So even yeah. when we injure the eye of an adult mouse, we can't get the stem cells in, in vivo or in situ to start proliferating. Right. They seem to be uh, inhibited from proliferating in the adult eye. And maybe that's the same explanation I offered for the why brain stem cells don't proliferate too much either because once you've got the retina wired up correctly 
you know, overproduction of new cells may not be a good thing. It could actually be a bad thing. Mm. Um, but as soon as you take them out of the eye and get them away, you have to grow them as single cells. As soon as you get them away from their neighbors, they don't require any growth factors. They'll grow essentially in water. You put them in a, in a dish with not really water. You need essential amino acids and yeah. some saline and stuff. But you don't need any kind of special growth factors to make them grow. Just getting them away from their neighbors makes them proliferate like crazy. Right. And so this, this led to two sorts of things, uh, two, two findings. One was that it turns out the, the single retinal stem cells in a dish are making their own growth factor that acts in an autocrine manner back on themselves. So yeah. they're stimulating themselves to proliferate. And we know that because if we throw antibodies in that blocks the action of that growth factor, they don't proliferate. Right. So they're making their own growth factor. The, and, and, but that, the question that comes up is, well, why don't they proliferate in the normal eye if they can make their own growth factor? Yeah. And the answer is, you have to separate them from their neighbors. If you put other cells in with them, they won't proliferate. And what that says is, they don't require any exogenous factors to proliferate. They make their own proliferation factors. But there's, cell, there, there's factors in the normal adult eye that prevent them from proliferating. And I guess I said, maybe that's a good thing, because you might yeah. not want them to proliferate too much. You get eye tumors and stuff like that. So, so we're busy right now trying to ask, what are the factors that are released into the media that are actually suppressing proliferation? Because you can see what, what it might lead to is if we understand what those factors are, we might be able to find drugs that block those factors. Yeah. And then maybe we could get the endogenous retinal stem cells that are in the eye to start proliferating and make some of the cells that are missing in blind people. And right. could we repair the eye from the inside? And that's really the promise of stem cell biology, is once you know there's stem cells in different tissues, can you activate them to repair the body from the inside using right. endogenous repair mechanisms, getting yeah. the stem cell to proliferate. Okay. So what are you looking towards exploring in the future? Um, I guess the, the, uh, the one project that we're working uh, quite heavily on now is the retinal stem cell project and trying to actually see if we can solve the problem of getting more of the transplanted photoreceptors to integrate into the eye. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's, there's, there's three big problems. Uh, when we transplant human photoreceptors into a mouse eye, most of them clump up and stick together. They don't distribute across the surface of the retina like we want them to. Yeah. Even the ones that distribute correctly, most of them die. 95% of the cells die that we put in. And of the 5% that don't die, very few of them integrate correctly in the correct size and shape and order yeah. in, the, in the retina. So we're trying to, to solve all three of those problems right now to see if we can uh, in, increase the number of cells that uh, integrate into the retina and presumably can provide a, a much better improvement in vision uh, for mice and eventually humans who can't see. Right. You're using the human um, stem cells to put into mice. So is that working? Are they comparable enough that it can implant into mice as well? Yeah, it's shocking that, that, uh, that you know, the difference between humans and, and mice is not the size of the cells for the most part, it's how many cells there are. So it's right. just that humans have millions of more cells than mouse do, but the individual cells are pretty close to the same size. And so yeah. uh, the human uh, photoreceptors seem to integrate okay in the mouse eye. We do have to use immunosuppression or use animals that don't have an immune system so that they don't reject the human cells. Yeah. So there are some tricks. In fact, we, we do most of our experiments initially with mouse retinal stem cells into mouse, see if it works, and then only once it works do we try the human cells because yeah. the human cells are harder to get, they grow slower, and you have to worry about the immune rejection. So we right. start with most cells, and then the things that work, we try them with the human cells. Yeah, and I guess with the new potential for curing humans with stem cells, we're often using animals for that. I read this about an experiment where they grew a human ear on a mouse. So what do you think about the future of using animals to pretty much harvest organs for humans? Yeah. 
Um, I, 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 you know, so it's it's hard to imagine doing it because you know the ear is one example, but that ear wasn't functional, right? Yeah. It, it had the shape of an ear, but it wasn't working like an ear. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the approach that that most people will take is uh, it's not worth the trouble of using a mouse. You might as well try and do it in a dish. Yeah. And so some of the bioengineers are getting so good now at using materials to sort of create cells into different types of forms and three-dimensional forms that I think it's going to be done in a dish and you won't really need to make whole organs in a mouse or a, a cat or a monkey to transplant into humans. Right. Uh, you're going to, I think the, bi the biomaterial and bioengineers are going to figure out better ways to do it in a dish yeah. using biomaterials. So uh, I think it, that, that's probably not a serious uh, worry in the future. So I guess... A lot of students listening to this would be really interested in how exactly they can learn to become maybe a researcher as well one day. Yeah. So it'd be neat to find out about what it's like for you working in research. So I'm just wondering what motivates you to keep going. Like, do you look towards publishing, or is it personal reward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's the, I mean, I'm sure everybody says it, but I think it's the most fun job you can imagine, mm. right? Because you don't really have a boss. Uh, you can essentially work on whatever you can get uh, grant funding for, any idea that you have, and you can always explore new ideas that you think are interesting. Uh, and it's fun being in the lab, so you plan your own. It's not a nine-to-five job. Usually people are in our labs all hours of the day, not because they, they're being forced to, because they like it. It's fun to do. They're yeah. planning their own experiments. They're thinking about them. They're thinking about how to run them best. It's, it's just, I think it's one of the best jobs ever is to yeah. be an experimental researcher. So, uh, and, you know, it's not for everybody. Some people find it overwhelming or uh, are challenged by it. But uh, there are certain people that really like being their own boss and designing their own experiments and sort of being able to think about and test whatever they want. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think it's a fantastic job. And what's it like working with your research team? Uh, it, it's wonderful. So, you know, uh, when I talk about uh, we've found stuff, usually that means the students in the lab have found stuff and yeah. then I, I look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, it's wonderful because you see students coming into the lab uh, when they first start out and they don't know anything, of course, and then they gradually learn how to do techniques. But then the really neat thing that happens is when they come up with better ideas than you do, mm -hmm. than you've got. And that's fantastic, yeah. right? Because you see that they've, they've, they've developed the technical stuff, but they've also uh, come up with ideas. And they understand the, the, some of the projects and experiments better than I do. And they come up with ideas I wouldn't have thought of. And yeah. so that's the most fantastic thing for me is uh, individual people. When I see people developing and coming up with their own ideas, and the ideas are better than me, better than the ones I have, then it makes for a really fantastic environment. The other nice thing about being a, in a lab is that it's usually not one person. There's, you know, it, some our lab has between 15 and 20 people, and mm -hmm. and they all interact. And so, you know, they'll publish papers with some people on one project, and then they'll work with some other people on a different project. And it's yeah. a, it's sort of a, a, a fluid environment where there's a chance to interact with lots of different people. So, what advice would you give any science students who are in high school? What would you tell them about how to pursue research later on? So uh, one of the things you can do is try and volunteer for uh, uh, to work in a lab. If uh, if you really th if you find someone who's doing something interesting, or you hear about somebody who's doing interesting, if you have a friend who's whose uh, mother is a uh, works in a lab, uh, volunteer and see yeah. uh, if uh, if it looks like it's something you're interested in or something you, you something you might find fun. Uh, and then once you get in, uh, into university and start university, uh, there are research courses, even in first and second year, where you know most classes you sit in lecture halls. Uh, yeah. But, but the university is trying to get people, science students, involved in research early on. So now there's, the, there's research pr 
program courses where even in first and second year you can get credit one course credit for working in a lab doing experiments right yeah, so it's yeah. a it's a it's a chance for you to get into a lab and see whether you like doing experiments and see right. whether you like the lab environment and like thinking about uh, hypotheses and trying to design experiments and so I'd say uh, as soon as you get a chance uh, have it's it's worth a shot to see if you like it a lot of people uh, uh, find out the research is not for them it's yeah. a little bit too unsatisfying and mm-hmm. you know somebody once said that if more than 10% of your experiments are working, you're not asking hard enough questions. Yeah. Right? So if you just design an experiment that's only a little bit different than the stuff you're already doing, it has a high probability of working, but you're not going to find out much new. So right. you really want 90% of your experiments not to work. And yeah. those 10% that, that do mean you're really asking a hard question. So that's what yeah. we want to ask. And so I guess that'd be the exciting part if they do work. It is, but if you get nine in a row that don't work, it's the depressing part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Well. Thanks so much for talking to us. It was really exciting hear about hearing about your own experiences and about the general possibilities of stem cells. So thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks very much for asking all the interesting questions. Those are our final words from Claire and Professor Vanderkoy. But remember, you're only a few clicks away from your own interview. If there's a subject you'd like to know a lot more about, go online and let us know. Find the podcast page at explorecuriosity.org on Facebook, or tweet us at LTS Out Loud, and let us know who you'd like to be interviewing right here on this podcast. Back now again to answer even more student questions is Professor Ian Rogers. Thanks so much for joining us again, and let's get started with our first question from Graham. I'm Grant Jensen. I'm from uh, Northern Secondary School. When scientists use uh, pluripotent stem cells, they differentiate them, but part of the problem is that they can't separate the pluripotent stem cells um, from the ones that have differentiated. And so my question is, um, why is it that not all of the pluripotent stem cells are able to uh, differentiate properly? And what is stopping them from turning into the ones that they desire? Um, that, that's an excellent, excellent question. I, I think the person who finds the answer to that will win the Nobel Prize because that is uh, a huge question. So it's a bit of a safety issue because uh, pluripotent stem cells can go on to make teratomas. But I think the the bigger issue is uh, when you're trying to differentiate a cell and culture to a specific tissue type, it's very, very difficult uh, to do. And we're always asking, you know, what do we need to add? What goes on? Timing. Um, It's complex. It's not just a matter of throwing growth factors in what happens in our body that's actually a gradient of growth factors. It's a little hard to reproduce that in a dish where some cells are getting low amounts and some cells are getting high amounts. So I think the the fact that the not all the pluripotent stem cells will differentiate is because not all of them are being treated equally in a dish. Um, when you do plate these cells, uh, no matter how hard you try, it's hard to get um, a nice monolayer. So you will see clumps of cells and they'll respond differently than cells in the dish that are more uh, spread spread apart, for example. So very little things like that. To, to answer that question or to, to try to solve that problem, there are some bioengineering labs that are basically making bioreactors and they're trying to develop systems in in ways that all cells will be treated equally. So at least it'll be more uniformity about differentiation. And what that will do is it'll help us to continue to design efficient differentiation systems. So I think our culture systems, I would have to say, are a bit primitive. Um, 
I don't think it's a property of the cells. I think it's a property of the researcher. We still have a lot to learn. This is still a, a fairly new uh, field for us to go from sort of spontaneous differentiation to actually controlling the differentiation in, in a dish. Great. Now let's move on to hear from Cassandra. Hi, I'm Cassandra Stafira, and I'm from the Ontario Science Centre Science School. In all the different types of stem cells we talked about, you always have to culture them first. What is the optimal amount that you want to culture and you want to generate outside of the body before it's transferred inside? Okay, so there's a, um, a number of answers to that question, and it really is stem cell dependent. So in some cases, uh, you can take stem cells and put them in, in the body directly and they will take cues from the even the injured area for example and differentiate so there's you only need to culture them to get enough cells so so for example uh, people that have poor blood flow in their fingers or in their toes usually people with type 2 diabetics their blood vessels or muscles start to deteriorate and there has been a lot of evidence where you could put undifferentiated stem cells not embryonic stem cells but um, stem uh, hematopoietic stem cells into that tissue, they will take cues from the surrounding area and make new blood vessels. The key is for about a one centimeter square of tissue damage, you need to put in about a million cells, so you'll need to culture them. In other cases, uh, for example, there's a group that's making islets, pancreatic islets, and they have to culture them quite extensively. So the first thing they have to do is be able to culture the stem cells as stem cells, keep them in the stem cell phase, grow up millions of them, and then they put them through a multi-stage differentiation protocol that at the end of it, you have functional islets they can then transplant back into the body, but you need to start with uh, hundreds of millions of cells in, in the beginning. And again, there's a, a five-stage culture process that uh, use different conditions because at the end you want to get a very specific cell type. So those are sort of the two extremes. And then there's other cases where you can culture cells a little less but sort of push them towards a certain cell type that you want. Um, maybe one week in culture to push them towards muscle and then you can inject them into muscle and the surrounding tissue will uh, basically coach those cells to continue to uh, mature. So it sounds like the, the technology is, at least on a rudimentary level, established. And I'm, I'm guessing now we're going through a series of evolutionary advances in terms of getting its efficiency down, yeah. losing few, fewer and fewer cells at every step. Y yes. And so, so what happens, I mean, it's interesting is even with um, embryonic stem cells or pluripotent stem cells, the expectation is they're a blank slate and you can push them any way you want. But there's a lot of evidence now that even within this uniform population, there are already some differences. So, so some are already fated to become one cell type over another. So no matter what you do, you're always going to lose some cells. The nice thing is you can grow up trillions of these cells without too much effort. Uh, it's much harder if you're looking at, let's say, uh, retinal stem cells or a tissue-specific stem cell where they don't grow as well as embryonic stem cells. And then in that case, um, um, it is a little trickier to culture them. Uh, and get a lot, of, but at the same time, they're already destined to go down the road you want them to go. So you're not gonna take a retinal stem cell and try to get it to become muscle, for example. Same way you wouldn't take a muscle stem cell and try to get it to become um, a liver, for example. So you, you have a balance there um, between the proliferating, having enough cells to start with, and then losing them during differentiation. And, and this is really key because 
a lot of the early work in stem cells is you you would see a lot of almost spontaneous differentiation and people were excited they get beating cardiomyocytes in a dish but they wouldn't really beat in a regulated manner so they weren't useful they look really cool but they weren't really useful or you would get so few of them you could never really do anything but impress your friends when they came to the lab and looked in the dish so now that we want to apply these clinically now it's becoming more of a challenge because you do have to be more efficient the longer you culture something, it is going to change. So you do worry about chromosome abnormalities and things like that. So we do steal a lot from the embryo itself. You you know you read your developmental biology books and you find out how the body does it, and then you try to re recapitulate that in a dish. And um, there's been some uh, successes and there's been some failures, and we learn from the failures. And I think it will uh, all um, happen eventually, but it's going to be a long process. So what is, you used the term destiny a couple times there. What does destiny mean on a biochemical, from a biochemical standpoint? Well, I, I think um, genes can be found in, a, in sort of an on or off configuration. It's, it's uh, basically what they call epigenetics. So they're, they have uh, chemical groups. Uh, they can be uh, methylated or um, have other uh, chemical markers on them that help uh, either promote transcription of that gene or to keep that gene shut off or to keep it sort of in a bivalent um, sort of on-off state, semi-on-off state. So when you start looking at cells within a, a homogeneous population, you realize that the pattern around the gene promoters can be different for different cells even if they're in the same dish. So some, the genes are, are sort of more tightly off the chromatin's a little wrapped a little tighter around them other cells those genes may be uh, sort of primed to turn on and if you put in the right growth factor those ones will turn on and that cell will go down that route versus one where maybe the um, the myoD gene for muscle is is shut down a little tighter now, why those differences occur, not really sure. I mean, it could be something as simple as cells talk to each other. So if you have a colony of stem cells, the ones in the center that are surrounded by stem cells may be more pluripotent. The ones along the edge, which are only in contact with stem cells on two or three sides, not all six sides, if you think of a cell as being sort of a square, um, may not be getting the same uh, signal dose. And, and you do see this in, in a dish. Uh, yeah, when you're growing embryonic stem cells, usually cells along the periphery start to differentiate. You begin to see them um, uh, mainly fibroblasts, but you, you will see them lose their pluripotent state. Huh. And finally, let's hear our last question from Harry. My name is Harry Chandrakumaran from Bayview Secondary School in grade 12. Do induced pluripotent cells act just as well or behave similarly to embryonic cells, or are there uh, differences between the two in terms of how well they, they can adapt? So that's, um, that's a very timely question, and the answer is yes and no. <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of labs studying and asking this exact question, and um, it's... I guess the short answer is that there are differences. So even though induced pluripotent stem cells are able to um, uh, make every cell in the body, you can, in mice, you can basically use them to make chimeras just like ESLs. Uh, and that's, you know, really one of the tests of the pluripotency. 
when they start looking at gene expression levels in these cells, and, and there's a, a lot of uh, high throughput studies where they're looking at proteins and protein levels and genes and what genes are expressed, they are finding differences. What they may find is, is that uh, ES cells and IPS cells may use different biochemical routes to get to the same end. Um, maybe they are pluripotent, but it's different gene pathways that are making them that way. Or it could be that these are real differences. Uh, so on the surface, if you take IPS cells and you take ES cells and you want to make some cardiomyocytes in a dish or you want to try making um, uh, insulin secreting cells, people have had success with both. And at the same time, people have found even with ESL lines, there are differences. So some work better to make muscle than other ones do. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it is a tough question to answer because, you know, um, there are differences between ES and IPS and within ESL's uh, lines themselves and definitely with IPSL lines. There's, there's huge differences even if they're, you have 10 lines all made from fibroblasts from the skin, they'll be different. But then if you start looking at IPS made from kidney cells, for example, versus uh, fibroblasts, you're going to see differences there also. Thank you so much oh, for taking the that time to wonderful. answer our questions. Those are great questions. Uh, those are really, really good questions and they're um, they're, they're very timely questions. They're issues that, that scientists are dealing with and clinicians are dealing with all the time now. So, That's the end of our inaugural series on stem cells, but fear not, we'll be back next time with something completely different. I promise. We cannot be more different if we tried. If you want to be sure to hear that next episode, though, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can find a link to our feed on any of our pages, check us out in the iTunes store, or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash LTS Outloud. Thanks to our producers, Nika Shakiba and Emily Beckett-Sward, Let's Talk Science, and the Ontario Trillium Foundation for their online engagement grant. Extra special thanks to my favorite, Broken Social Scene, for letting us use their music on this episode. You can check them out at brokensocialscene.ca. Finally, if there's anything you want to discuss on this podcast, let us know. Visit the Let's Talk Science Out Loud page on explorecuriosity.org, on Facebook, or tweet us at LTS Out Loud. It doesn't matter if it's an interview idea or just some curiosity, don't be afraid to ask that question. <laughs>